I think what I have decided to do is perhaps a revolutionary move in a very, very profound sense. But I have decided to quit goofing around. I have decided that from here on in, in my life, I am going to build a giant edifice. I am going to work with the blocks of time. Now, let's, of course, you have to look at that uh, symbolically. Time, in this case, being the raw clay of existence. And I will pat each small hour, each tiny minute, each fleeting second into a thing of beauty. I will pat it together there with the hand scene, and then I'll put one second on top of the other, and then I'll put the next second on top. Of course, of course, these things often have a way of going awry, re-awry, like things that go bump in the night. I, I, I think one of the saddest sights that I have seen in a long time is old Harry James blowing his horn through a piece of wet Kleenex at 3 o'clock in the morning on the late, 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 late movie. That's the late, late one. The one, I'll tell you, these, these movies are so late that Jack Oakey is starring in them. Well, I mean, he gets the girl. That's how long ago those movies were made, you know. And, and on between the eighth and the ninth reel of these flickering movies comes on Harry James. And he's blowing his horn through wet Kleenex. Now, I don't know whether he's trying to prove that he can still blow his horn through wet Kleenex or wet Kleenex improves the music. I don't know. But Harry James comes on and he blows his horn through the wet Kleenex and looks out at us kind of sadly for a few moments. He says, now I'm going to blow my horn through wet Kleenex. Quack, 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 quack. Let's swing, he says, without much conviction. Well, I can say, however, <laughs> that at times in my life, wet Kleenex has meant something. Uh, that's another thing. But I, we, I think we'd better get back to building our life out of uh, building blocks here of time. We'll pat the bricks together and work as best we can. Of course, commercials, I think, in the way they're being done now, probably tell a great deal more about our life than even the most profound sociological probing programs done, say, by the pseudo-serious shows like uh, East Side, West Side, you know. East Side, West Side always takes a predictable stand on all the right issues. Very predictable, you know. And <laughs> this, is, this is the kind of pseudo-serious world. But the, but the commercial, you know in a way, gets right down to the guts of it. Does not fool around with trying to be probing and sociologically important. It just lays it out. For example, there, <laughs> there's one commercial where, uh, where you see this guy standing on a ladder. I don't know whether you've seen this one. There's a guy standing on a ladder, and he's replacing a light bulb, and he's teed off. And he says, oh, please, crying out loud, putting in a new, putting in a new lamp over such a rotten sink. Here's the electrician who is editorializing about the fact that you have called him in to put a new light over a bad sink. He doesn't like your sink, see? This is very revealing about the world of today. He's editorializing. He says, what a rotten sink I'm putting my light bulb over. And he's up there on the ladder. And all of a sudden, you see coming in from the left there, this chick shows up. And she's wearing overalls. And he looks down. He says, what do you want in the current mode of today? He says, what do you want? And she says, I am the plumber. 
says, what? And he falls off the ladder. He says, Lady Plummer, Lady Plummer, is the way he puts it. He falls down. She says, yeah, I'm a lady. Why not a Lady Plummer? He says, well, I don't know. He climbs back up and starts to put the light bulb in. She says, I am here to fix the sink, that rotten sink. Well, it turns out that all that's the matter with the sink is it's got moldy tea stains in it. I mean, uh, this is, uh, and this is enough for modern man to call in the plumber to replace the sink. It's got tea stains. Well, she takes out the Ajax cleaner or the whoopee cleaner, whatever it is, and she pours it in the thing. She says, I'll show you. You don't have to replace it. She, it's, it gets the deep stains. Wouldn't it be great if you could do that to your soul? And so she starts to clean the thing up. In comes the housewife. Well, now, we have had a little graphic lesson in life of today. There in 58 seconds in between reel 6 and reel 7 of that monster movie, The Thing That Swallowed the Bronx. Well, you, you, you look at this. <laughs> and, 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 of course, uh, the, the, the time, I, I've, noticed, I've noticed now what they're doing. Uh, they're, they're trying to get away from the beautiful young things. Have you noticed that, drinking the beer? Have you ever tried to make contact with any of those people that smoke cigarettes in those cigarette commercials, any of you guys in there? You know those people that run up and down through the woods by the lakes there? And uh, whenever they take a deep drag on a cigarette, the music swells. I wonder what they're putting in tobacco uh, that, that uh, most guys don't seem to get from the butts that I know. They just sit there and they smoke them compulsively. But the music does not swell behind Mr. Bullard. When he takes a deep drag, <laughs> well, of course, this is all part of all part of our time, and uh, I think that uh, there are things more serious to discuss. Uh, since we're all here in this together, we're in this boat, we're rocking it back and forth. It's on a Friday night, and you, you wonder which way it's going to go. Whether the thing is still leaking as bad as you knew it was leaking ten minutes ago. By the way, how are you doing with your bailing, huh? Has it ever occurred to you that life is one long succession of work with the bailing can? Your own private bailing can? Down there at the bottom of the boat, trying to keep the water that's coming in from lapping up around your knees? And is it water? That's another uh, question we'd like to ask you. But, but uh, on, on the subject of the, of the bailing operation... The other day, I, I uh, saw another preview of one of the interminable. You know, isn't the, you're taking, speaking of taking stands on predictable things, how many movies have you seen in the last five years which told you that war is bad? Uh, you know, these are <laughs> very obvious comments. The guy, the guy figures he's being very brave by showing that war is rotten. You know, and he, he spends two and a half million dollars making movies show that war is rotten. Well, I don't think there are many people who have many illusions on that. And yet, uh, this is always considered a very brave stand uh, to, to, to make a movie showing that war is bad. Well, now, I, I, there's no one who could agree more with this thesis. And you know, the one thing that, uh, than me, and I'm saying than me, old Fred here, uh, but the one thing that all these, uh, these movies do, almost every one of them that says war is rotten, is that they ignore the fact uh, of why the war started. You know, any war, they never, they never even touch on, on any of the startings of any of the wars. They just show guys hitting each other and blowing up the bombs and strafing each other. But they never even ever hint, uh, you never even touch on the, pro on the basic problem, why did it start? Never discuss that. Somehow these filmmakers all seem to assume that it started because guys like to hit each other. You know, or they like to bomb each other. 
Well, I don't know. I'm not so sure about that. Because you see, if you ever did a real movie on why wars start, then I think you might have real turmoil in the audience. Real turmoil. Uh, you, you, you see what I mean by that? Because wars start be, uh, something far more subtle and far more basic than just uh, kids buy uh, plastic machine guns and when they grow up they want to learn how to shoot the real thing. You know, it's simple, simple to say that. Because, you know, most of the wars have been fought, fellas, uh, before the days when kids could buy plastic machine guns. In fact, I heard a guy talking about that jazz the other day on the radio, and I never had a plastic machine gun when I was a kid. Did you? No. They didn't sell plastic helmets when I was a kid in the, in the dime store. They sold a lot of, oh, a lot of balsa model uh, Curtis Robin airplanes. I mean, but there weren't many Curtis Robins in the war that I was in. I didn't see many Curtis Robins. you see any there? Uh, they used to sell a lot of big little, little Orphan Annie books. And uh, I, 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 I could buy every, all the Mickey Mouse books I wanted when I was a kid. I mean, providing I could ante up the dime, you know. And I, I don't remember many. In fact, I don't recall ever owning a hand grenade until I got in the war. And then it was only loaned to me. They didn't, <laughs> they didn't tell me it was mine, you know, to keep or anything. <laughs> oh, yeah. How many of you have ever thrown a hand grenade? Well, I have. And uh, it's quite an experience, I'll tell you that. Uh, I remember the first day out on the... I've never discussed this, the, this little side issue of the, uh, you know, the, the late lamented uh, fiasco. But uh, I'll never forget the, the first day we go out to the hand grenade range. You know, they have a hand grenade range. You hear about the rifle range. But uh, the hand grenade range works very differently in a way. Uh, it's louder, for one thing. And for another thing, it's more scary. You see, you, you hold this thing. They show you how to throw it, you know, kind of a, a funny, stiff-armed throw. You know, it, 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 as an old outfielder, that kind of throwing is very bad. It gives you a bad elbow. But uh, they show you how to take this thing in and you sort of throw it over your shoulder like that, a stiff arm. Well, the first time we go out to the rifle range, that, that is kind of predictable because from the time you're a kid, you know, you, you see guys in movies shooting rifles. You know, there's a certain feeling of knowing about rifles. But hand grenades, another story. The only time that I had ever really encountered or had even heard anything about a hand grenade was what they used to call them in Chicago. Or they used to call them in old movies about Chicago. What? I'll, I'll award you the brass figligy with bronze oak leaf palm. If What? Right. <laughs> they never call them that in the war. Do you know that? Uh, they used to call them in in uh, in the old movies that they were always making about Chicago. By the way, uh, as a, as a guy who lived in Chicago, uh, I can say that the Chicago that was shown in the movies was absolutely unrecognizable uh, to a, sh a person living in Chicago. It just didn't look like that. The people weren't like that. I don't know why they always used to get New York guys to play Chicagoans. Uh, they would always get Edward G. Robinson, who who did not sound at all like a Chicagoan. He was always saying, you know, things like, I, I, go out and get the paper. And, you know, you just don't talk like that in Chicago. Nobody ever talked that way. And they'd get Jimmy Cagney to play a Chicago gangster. And he was about as New York East Side as you could get with a touch of Irish in there. But nothing like Chicago. Uh, but we'd, we'd sit there and watch the Chicago movies in Chicago 
roughly about the same way that I guess a, a resident of Staten Island feels like when he sits and watches a movie uh, called Naked City, you know, about New York, and he's he's sitting there and he he's never seen anybody get shot on the rooftops, no yelling and hollering down in the L. He just sits and watches. Well, I remember getting back to the to the hand grenade thing. They always were talking about pineapples. Uh, that was a big thing, uh, the, the idea of throwing a pineapple. Well, the only, the only actual experience I ever had with, uh, as a kid with a pineapple was the time when my Uncle Charles was, was working for the cleaners. <laughs> he worked for this outfit and had a big chain of cleaners all around town. And apparently at that time, there were a lot of gangsters working in the cleaning racket or trying to work into the cleaning racket or offering them some kind of insurance, I suggest. Perhaps might be what it was. They were offering them some kind of all-inclusive accident insurance that would ensure that they would not throw pineapples into the front of the guy's store if he ponied up. Well, apparently the cleaners... Speaking of being taken to the... This is W-O-R-A-M and F-M, New York. Sir, the airline just called. Who is the airman? Your jet leaves at 8.45 tonight. He could be you, a man with a thirst for a manly approved. You arrive in Rome at 10 tomorrow. Free on the format. Every time choose the Boulder Keener tasting ale. Will there be anything else, sir? Valentine. There's a little bit of the ale man in all of us. And nothing brings it out like a Valentine ale. Bolder. Keener. More to the point. Valentine ale. The ale man's ale. Who is the ale man? He could be you. A man with the thirst for a manly fruit. Three out of four men. Every time choose the Boulder Keener tasting ale. They uh, they used to come around to my old Uncle Charles's place and make the collection. And he was just a driver for this outfit. And I remember one day, Uncle Charles came home for lunch. And he had his truck. He had one of these panel trucks, you know, and on the side it said the, the Schwartz cleaners or something on the side. Fine work, our specialty, one day service available. And it was in gold gilt letters. And once in a while, about every three months, Mr. Schwartz, who owned the cleaners, would allow my uncle to borrow the truck over the weekend. And that would enable him to take the entire family out to the forest preserve for a giant family picnic. And we would all sit there among the racks in the back of this truck, you know, with, a, with the clothing hanging back there. The entire family, grandmothers and everybody, would go all the way out to the forest preserve in the cleaning truck. Well, one day, poor old Uncle Charles came home from work. And he's home there having lunch, his Campbell's soup and his hamburger. And he's sitting there. And he finishes his lunch. And he's fooling around looking at the paper. He's going to go back. That was in the days when guys would hump, you know, would drive their truck home and eat. And he's getting ready to go back. And Uncle Charles gets in his truck and he starts to drive back. Well, he gets about two-thirds of the way back to the Schwartz cleaners when he sees this black car whistle past him. And as the black car whistles past him, about five guys yelled out of the black car, It's no use to go back, you fink! Well, Uncle Charles just turned around and drove right back home. He knew what had happened. And sure enough, by the time he got home, the report was out where the Schwartz's cleaner's place was where he worked was now a hole in the ground. <laughs> and uh, Mr. Schwartz apparently had not paid his insurance. 
and there was a lot of smoke. And so they allowed him, because now the Schwartz cleaners were out of business, he was allowed to keep his truck. In fact, there, was, there wasn't much left. Mr. Schwartz was blown up, and I think a lot of raincoats were blown up. A lot of other things were blown up. And Mr. Schwartz himself, I believe, would have liked Uncle Charles to have the truck. For years, we drove back and forth in the Schwartz cleaner's truck, which was the only contact we had with the Al Capone world. Now, now there, there's, uh, there's, there's in, a, in a nutshell, what New York uh, or what Chicago felt about the Chicago world. And we didn't know any more about it than that, would you? I, I, once in a while at night, you'd hear the boom in the distance. Uh, yeah, you'd hear. They, they also would blow up taverns, too. I don't know why this was. Uh, <laughs> you'd just hear, it would go, boom. And people would just sort of go around and go down there, they'd get, get in their cars and go down to see the hole in the ground where the boys had failed to pay insurance. It's funny how, how a lot of people in Chicago still have that feeling about insurance men. Uh, they do. Because uh, the word insurance always was associated with that. I'm, I'm, you know, even when I go, even myself, I drive past the Mutual Life building down here, I get nervous. Just look up there. It should be in the shape of a big pineapple. You know, just let you know that that <laughs> if you don't pay up. But you know, uh, this this is connected in a in a kind of a subversive way, I suppose, with a with a thing that I wanted to do tonight, which is a in a sense uh, a, to talk about why is it that we always discuss the results of some sickness in the human soul. And we never really discuss the sickness. We discuss the war and never discuss what brings about wars. We never, we never talk about this. Endless pictures of showing guys going through uh, Normandy villages with the chicks. Endless pictures of guys strafing other guys in planes. And this is supposed to be a big message, you know, that be careful, war is bad. But nobody ever talks about the original thing that lies within all of us because you know they started uh, they were having wars long before there were bad comic books people again like to say well it's the comic books they were having wars long before anybody had movies about how great war was you know this is another thing that one of the great syndromes of our time we like to blame violent movies we like to blame uh, violent uh, uh, TV shows this is producing more well, as a matter of fact, uh, there have been a lot of violent TV shows and there have been a lot of violent movies, and yet I don't, uh, I don't suspect there's any less fear of a war nor any more uh, desire for a war on, on the part of people. I think it's something that goes much deeper than that. And just about, uh, oh, it's been about two or three weeks ago, there was a piece in an English newspaper, as a matter of fact, the London Sunday Times which is a very official newspaper, about this very problem. And it is the kind of piece that would would not really appear in an American newspaper. It's not to say that, uh, that the English are more civilized than us, but I think that the English have felt war more than we have. Have you noticed how very few English movies are made to show uh, war is bad? Have you noticed that there aren't very many European movies that show war is bad? Because they all know it. It's like telling people the obvious. It's like telling people, uh, it's like making a great big movie about water's wet. Or if you're not careful, the ocean will drown you. Very big, serious message. We, we applaud messages like that here in this country. 
Uh, I remember one time a, a cartoon was getting gigantic applause for making a cartoon 15 years after the fact that atom bombs are bad. <laughs> you know, this kind of thing. Boom. Atom bombs are terrible. And uh, this is considered a very deep, serious, probing study into uh, the maladies of our time. Uh, what, what is this? You know what? Uh, are, are we really serious about this or not? Well, here's a piece in the, in the London Times. It's, a, it's under the heading of biology, which is a very significant heading for this problem. Biology. They head it very cleanly, distinctly. You know how we have pieces in the paper that will say science or uh, advertising news? This is biology news. Man, say scientists, has more natural aggression than wild animals, are now researching into the reasons. Now, they're doing it totally as to why man has wars. They don't, they don't, they don't even go into little trivial stuff like wars are bad. We know this. Or uh, bad people uh, who learn how to shoot guns when they're kids. That's why we have wars. Come on, stop it, people. Come on, all you guys cut it out. You know, even you guys who make movies saying war is bad, you have the same thing in you that brings wars on. We all do. That's why the scientist, the biologist, is studying man as a creature. Uh, to, to give another parallel to this, it would be, you, you, you can see how silly it would be to say, let's just take for a, uh, a simple study. Let us say we were to study why lions kill zebras. Now, it would be ridiculous to say that some lions kill zebras and others don't. In short, you'd have to find the right kind of lion to study to, to figure out why lions kill zebras. That there are some good lions who just don't do this, who just eat carrots. You know, that kind of thing. Well, a scientist wouldn't do this. He, he would study the lion as a creature, not certain lions. Uh, he, would not, he would not be so naive as to say there are good lions and there are bad lions. And that, that, that lions... Oh, one of the great misconceptions, of course, about the lion is that he has to be taught to hunt. This is always cropping up in the Walt Disney movies. He has to be taught to hunt. Somehow, the impression being that if Mama Lion doesn't teach the lion to hunt, he would somehow be a rock. Or maybe he would grow up to be maybe a chipmunk, eating nuts. You know, <laughs> That's always that impression that the people have about lions. Forget it. Stop it, kids. You're kidding yourself. Uh, you are. You're, in fact, one of the one of the saddest stories I've seen in a long time is a picture story in Life magazine here a few months back about a girl who had a leopard. You remember that story, where they had gotten this tiny cub, where uh, the cub had never been taught to hunt or anything. The uh, mother was was killed or something before the cub's eyes were open, and they had raised this cub from uh, a little cub, you know. Now, suddenly, it's a grown leopard, and there were this series of picture stories where suddenly the leopard decided he might enjoy having an extra snack today. And uh, there was the picture story. You, did you see that in life? Wow. And the final line of the story was a line by the man who owned the leopard. His uh, comment was, leopards are always leopards. <laughs> you put that into your hollow tooth, Peggy, and think about that one. 
But we don't we don't like to we don't like to admit that about man. Somehow we like to divide man into various kinds of men. And uh, this, by the way, in direct opposition to the romantic theory that all uh, right thinkers have today, that under the skin all men are alike. Now, isn't that an interesting contradiction? And yet it's always done. Uh, the same guy will make a movie proving that all men are alike. He's against uh, segregation, we'll say, rightfully so. So he makes a movie to prove that underneath the skin all men have the same emotions, the same passions, the same desires, and the same dreams. He hardly ever shows, though, that all men have the same evil under the skin. This he will never admit to. <laughs> Therefore, killing his entire premise, and the paradox is always there. So the same guy will then turn around and make a movie to show that certain evil people cause wars. He will show the little peaceful man who is always against war, and then he will show the guy who at the age of seven learned how to uh, enjoy guns because he took up plastic uh, hand grenades when he was five, you know, that kind of thing. Uh, therefore, destroying again that, that, that thesis. We, we don't know where we stand. Are we a single creature or are we not? That's a, that's a loaded question. Are we or aren't we? You have to decide one way or the other. And by the way, if you do decide, remember... If you say we are a single creature, then all the properties are owned by all of us. Evil, good, bad, all the rest of it. We all have the same capacity and the same drives and the same urges. This, of course, is, is using, the, using the phrase species scientifically in this case. Just as it is impossible for you, if you, if you were to walk out on the veldt somewhere and there are 7,000 lions around, uh, you're, you're a pretty naive scientist if you begin to believe that some lions uh, are carnivorous and other lions are sweet, peaceful creatures that play violins in their soul, and uh, other lions. You know, I'm sorry. They're they're all they're they're a creature, and and if there weren't, if they were not, science would be impossible. There would be no such thing as science, because science is the system of correlating facts about various species and about various phenomena in nature. It's building a chain of facts whereby things can either be predicted or can by at the same time be understood. Now, how often has man been studied as a creature? Really as a creature. And I'm not talking about the most obvious things like medicine, uh, sexual problems, or physical problems. How, how, how often has he been studied? Well, here's, here's the piece. You want to hear what they say about it? This is in the, in the London Times, a very official paper. Animals, from the hippopotamus to the ant, have for various reasons aggressive traits. But the species which shows up worst in biological research on animal aggression is Homo sapiens. Only in man is aggression so uncontrolled as to lead to wholesale killing within a species. This human peculiarity is being increasingly studied by scientists who last week compared notes at an Institute of Biology meeting on, quote, the natural history of aggression. Primitive man, it emerged from the discussion, is no better than modern man. You know, we have this illusion that back out in the wilds is the, salvo, is the simple, beautiful savage. Well, listen to what the scientists say. Primitive man is no better than modern man. The Willigaman Wallaloo 
of New Guinea, whose lives, quote, are an unending round of death and revenge, reveal, according to one anthropologist, the essentials of the pristine state of man. Now, the pristine state is the pure state. That means strip all the things which most of the hippies think are bad, society from us, and we would be like these people. We would be much worse than we are today, which is uh, kind of goes against a lot of our romantic notions, you know, that, that somehow if we could return to nature, we'd be beautiful. The scientists say the opposite. Return to nature and you will be, you will be a little better than the tiger. In fact, you really will be better than the tiger because you will do it continually. The tiger only does it when he has stomach growlings. <laughs> uh, he feels like, oh, not necessarily, though, you know. Are you aware, too? Of course, I know you must be aware that one of the most uh, fascinating uh, sides to this business of aggression is that the, as the animal goes higher up the scale in intelligence, he becomes more aggressive for its own sake. In fact, yes. In fact, uh, the, 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 uh, to, to give you an object, in fact, the, the tiger... Which is, which is higher up the scale in animal intelligence than the lesser feline, say, for example, the lion. The tiger will often go on extended aggressive rampages just for the sheer kicks of doing it. This is the truth. Uh, oh, yes, this happens quite often in Burma and in India, where a tiger will come into a town particularly an older tiger. And by the way, I, this is also, I think, related to perhaps some of the study that, that, uh, that as man becomes frustrated, he is probably prone to become more aggress aggressive, frustrated by many things. So a tiger, as he becomes older, becomes frustrated by his life. And he will come into a town, into a native village, and will just go from one end of the street to the other, killing maybe 30 or 40 people and leaving at the other end. Uh... This is a phenomenon not often reported on in America because we like to think that animals are taught to be that way. If they were not with man, they would be beautiful. But don't, don't be so sure of that. But anyway, let's go on with the article here. They say that in the, the, the scientists say that in the pristine state of man, be careful, batten down the hatches. Non-human animals are continually fighting other members of their own species, but except in very crowded conditions... Now, see, the important part is fighting members of their own species. They say that non-human animals are continually fighting other members of their own species, but except in very crowded conditions or in captivity, they seldom kill one another. And we quote here. Again, this is all a quote, of course. It is very difficult to find any examples of true overt fighting resulting in the death of the loser among mammals under normal conditions in the wild. That's interesting. Said Dr. L. Harrison Matthews, scientific director of the famous London Zoo, the weapons of wild animals are potentially so dangerous that fighting is ritualized into display, threat, submission, and finally appeasement, so that fights are generally no more than trials of strength, followed by disengagement, and rapid withdrawal by the weaker animal. In short, they don't really fight. They show their claws, or they will, they, will, they will bear their fangs, and they will move towards one another. Until finally, the one who is the weakest recognizes it. He gets a couple of little belts, and he turns and runs. It's, it's a ritual, you see. The fights between stags, 
during the mating season, we're quoting again, for example, are usually only antler-to-antler shoving matches in which the weaker animal concedes defeat and runs away before it gets hurt. And the ritual fighting of wolves ends with the weaker animal putting itself completely at the mercy of the other by rolling on its back and exposing its most vulnerable part of his body. But it is never killed. Never. In some animals, the ritualizing process has gone so far that they never actually come to blows at all, but simply threaten one another. Just make a couple of moves and that's it. Clearly, aggression has a purpose in attacking other species or in defense against them, other species. But what is the biological function of aggression and fighting within a species? This is where they're doing the study, because after all, that's what man is involved in. According to the eminent German animal behaviorist, Dr. K. Lorenz, there are several. These are the reasons for fighting within a species. It helps to distribute the animals evenly over the available habitat. It selects the strongest to defend the family or herd. And it establishes social rank or a pecking order, which ensures the rule of an experienced leader. Because the fighting is ritualized, the species does not destroy itself. And its revolutionary advantages far outweigh the occasional accidental death. Now, that's in the animal world. Wolves, showing something very like mercy to weaker wolves, ritualized fighting according to strict rules, like a boxing match. Aggression as a means of establishing social rank, the application of all of this to understanding human behavior, is not, of course, being missed by the scientists. But why is human aggression more extreme than among animals? This is the key question. Dr. Stanislav Andreski of the University of Ibadan ascribes it to a disbalance between technical ingenuity and moral awareness. This, he said, is due to the technical level being fixed by the most gifted inventors, while the ethical level is determined by the least benevolent men. Because the way in which, quote, the processes of selection for positions of authority favor ruthless power seekers. In short, we don't quite follow the rules of revolution or evolution the way the animals do. And uh, quite often, the least moral men are put in positions of being moral leaders. And on the other hand... uh, we have this technical thing which the animals don't have. It's a very interesting thing. Of course, then they have to get back. See, they are assuming here. They're, they're, they're making a very interesting assumption, these scientists, which, which has, has to be pointed out between the lines. They assume already that since man is an animal, he shares with other animals that common trait, aggression within the species. They're merely, they're merely here asking, why is it different? Why, for example, would we kill one another, whereas the other animals don't? Uh, it's, it's an interesting thing, because, because we like to assume that there are, that there are men, um, good people don't have any of these things. See, that's the assumption that is made by uh, people who make these movies, these movies against war. The assumption is that all we've got to do tomorrow morning is to stop having wars. We have to decide war is bad, and no more would we have them. Well... Uh, that's like, in a sense, 
that's like deciding that sex is bad. You're not going to have it anymore. No, we're, we're going to do away with that. It'd be pretty hard, you know. Uh, it would be like saying that we're going to we're going to tomorrow morning uh, do away with uh, fear. Just stop having fear. Well, we share with the animal kingdom a lot of primal fears that cannot be erased simply by reading a book on positive thinking. We, sh we have a fear of death. Animals have this. We have a fear uh, that is very deep-seated of the dark. This is not going to be erased. We have a fear of, of noises in the, in the underbrush. Is, and I'm, I'm using that term allegorically here, noises in the underbrush. The unknown sound can be the unknown tongue of another man. We have all kinds of fears that are just not going to be erased that simply. Now, we go on. Here's the last paragraph. This is very interesting. Since human aggression is so deep seated, the only solution, says Dr. Anthony Storr, a London psychiatrist, was to somehow find, the way the animals have done, substitutes for war. Quote, our only hope, he said, is that we can continue war by other means than the primitive one of killing each other. He assumes, of course, that we are going to have war. And uh, I think this is a pretty safe assumption. If you, if you care to look at, at that shelf of history books, you'll find it's pretty hard to prove that, that, uh, that stopping war is easy or that people don't like it for some reason or other. Then the final statement, they say, the ideal would probably be to copy those species which have ritualized aggression to the point of making threats without coming to blows. And here is an interesting statement at the end. Because that first statement has been made many times. Listen to this last sentence, rather. Perhaps something of the sort has already been achieved with the Cold War. How do you like that? We all like to think that if we could get rid of the Cold War, the world would be better. There is an interesting statement that perhaps the Cold War is a ritualized war where we just have giant summit meetings one after the other and, uh, and, and, and ritualistic aggression moves, like the Russians will stop all the trucks on the Autobahn for a while, and we'll get very mad about that. And then there will be a great big meeting, and then we will refuse to sell them wheat, and then there will be a lot of more wheat <laughs> stuff like that, you see. They'll build a wall, you see, and then we'll get mad about that, and they'll yell about the wall. And uh, this is a, it's like a giant game that's being played between two enormous powers. And, the, and only in the London Times would it be implied that this is perhaps a good thing. <laughs> because the, the, I know the New York Times would, would have had it, let's end the Cold War. Well, now that's a good point. That for 15 years, two countries have been sparring around. Big countries with really deep ideological uh, splits, you know, in them. And nothing has happened. Nobody has really been killed. Nobody's been... Now, now let's get out of there. Don't, don't worry. I, I know all about the commercial. Just, just be calm in there, people. So I'm, I'm with it. But uh, uh, this, this, this is a pretty interesting viewpoint. Uh, I, I couldn't help it. Uh, just, just yesterday I was listening to one of these fatuous discussions that movie makers are always giving out when they are being interviewed by interviewers about their important movie, Against War. 
And they talked about uh, the brutalizing effect of the GI walking through the town with a submachine gun and so on. But never once does anybody ever talk about that one key question. Why do we have wars? You know, it would be very simple. You take a, take a book like Catch-22, which is another one of these... Uh, these uh, you know, one of these one of these polemics to, to to prove that war is bad. We know that, Mr. Heller. But I, I, uh, what what brings up the Hitlers? That's a more interesting question, really, in a way. That 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 I doubt whether there would have been uh, so much ac- action in World War II if there hadn't been a Hitler. I don't think the bombs caused Hitler. I don't think the silly air force caused Hitler. There's a little more to it than that. What caused that thing to come about? What what was in it? Now, uh, I I don't know. You know, I I have in my own mind, I have no uh, I have no other feeling other than that we're often and constantly and continually missing the point. It's funny how how uh, we are. Perhaps this is part of the unreality of this time. I don't think uh, a few years ago people had as many naive assumptions about mankind as they have now. And I'm not saying the old days were better. But people assumed that there was evil in everyone. You remember those days, Tony? Yeah, people just assumed that. Today we don't do that. We assume there is evil in some people. That's a, that's a dangerous assumption too, you know. Uh, it, leads to, it leads to a lot of gunplay. It leads to a lot of things which which are not necessarily part and parcel of the end or the aim that most of these people are continually aiming towards. I don't know. I'm just curious. What it is here? We're all sitting around here. We're sitting around here. Oh, we're sitting here, all of us, at uh, just a little bit before midnight. All of us just sitting here. And I wonder how many of us ever really think about what we are I mean I'm not talking about what your name is where you live what town you live in what job you have have you ever thought about man paralleled with and spread-eagled on the entire panoply of nature itself the giraffes the apes the minnows the frogs the lizards what what a what a fascinating creature we are! We really are. I, I, we're the only one. Look at look at me. I'm sitting here now on some kind of a rock, talking to some other creatures about myself and about you. I don't think that the toads do this. We really are an interesting creature, and I think we are probably the most. Uh, on, on the one hand, of course, how are you going to how are you going to define danger? <laughs> How are you going to find good? I suggest you just keep your knees loose and occasionally sharpen your fingernails. You know, just get a little workout. <laughs>